All right, so we are moving right along. This is our spring semester. We have uh, Lucas here is going to be doing a history podcast. Um, I don't want to ruin it too much, but this one is going to center around around 1913, maybe 1914. And uh, he's going to take it away and give us a little bit of information, a little bit of an insight to step outside the classroom and step into his. Without further ado, it's time to get a little history information with our friend Lucas. Here we go. As the clock strikes 10, the citizens of a small Belgian town covered their ears as bombs exploded on the bridge, severing them from the other side. When the rain stopped, instead of dead silence, there was the insistent sound of marching, the stamping of feet. From the ashes of the rubble and smoke came the rumbling mass of armies. The Germans were here. Ah, greetings fellow traveler. I, Lucas the host, humbly welcome you. Come and join me for episode 001 of the History Archives, where we dwell into the intricate stories of humans long ago. From heroic tales of valor to bloody wars and tragedy, millions of years of humanity are contained within the books of our library. Let's open one, shall we? So, to give a quick intro to what we will be dwelling in today, as I covered in episode 000, we will be beginning in the year 1914. Specifically, we will be covering the beginnings and the spark of World War I and what happened before, during the Balkan Wars and the expansion of the Ottoman Empire. So, let's get into it, shall we? The Calm Before the Storm when during 1914 and the years before, so around 1910 to 1914, Europe had amassed itself from a bunch of little tiny micro-states and city-states to a lot of large empires. These empires, fueled by imperialism, often went outside of Europe, for example, the British Empire and the French Empire with colonies in Americas, Africa, and Asia. But today we're going to be focusing on two of the more inland empires, countries that did not expand overseas but instead focused on territorial grounds. This includes the very infamous Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, or also known as the Duo Monarchy. So, by this time around 1910 to 1914, Europe has been at peace for a relatively long time. The last major war between big powers was during 1871, which was the Franco-Prussian War where Germany won and annexed Aslan's Lorraine and became the German Empire. So in this around 40 years of peace, which is relatively rare for Europe, technology has developed a lot. The airplane has been invented, new guns, and new battle tactics were all very modern. And additionally, the Industrial Revolution had just begun to form. So everyone now has factories and can produce war equipment if the need ever comes. Now, at the turn of the century, let's focus on an area of southern Europe that is highly disputed over and will be disputed over for a large chunk of history, the Balkans. The Balkan countries today include Serbia, Greece, and uh, 
Bosnia and Herzegovina, but if you haven't heard of them, it's fine. We'll cover them later. So all you need to know for now is that right now, the main superpower in this region is the Ottoman Empire, which is which represents modern day Turkey. But Turkey did some expansion and now covers most of the Balkans and the Middle East. So this empire is crumbling and weak. It is nicknamed the Old Man of Europe because it has existed since medieval times and even though right now its powers are being competed by a lot of other Arabic countries, it still retains its hold. However, we have seen notable movements in the past including the rise of Slavic nationality. So, with the weakening of the Ottoman Empire, we see Slavic states such as Serbia, Montenegro, Bulgaria, and Greece break away from the Ottoman Empire to form their own respective countries. They were able to do this despite being smaller and less powerful with the help of the bigger, stronger Russia. Additionally, these movements were fueled by nationalist uprisings or the deep, the deep loyalty to one's ethnicity or country. These Slavic countries got their ideas mainly from the unifications of other countries including Italy and Germany who only recently formed together to form one major country. Now with the Ottoman, as I said before, the Ottoman Empire is very weak. So the nations of Serbia, Montenegro, Bulgaria, and Greece see an opportunity to liberate their continent from the Turkish and Arabic conquerors. So around 1910, the Balkan League is formed. Particularly strong was Bulgaria and Serbia, who were the main players of the war. Seeing the Balkan League form, the Ottoman Empire senses a disturbance it decides to make sure that they're not, you know, invading them and conquering them. But instead, the Balkan League initiates the attack first and starts the First Balkan War. Turkey, as by now, or the Ottoman Empire, has other problems to deal with due to their massive ethnic diversity. There's a lot of people in their country. So their army isn't able to move fast enough and the Balkan League is victorious. They are able to quickly encircle and destroy much of the Ottoman forces in Europe, pushing them back all the way to the gates of Constantinople or Istanbul as it was later renamed. And this means that now the Balkan League has officially liberated the rest of Europe from other conquerors. This quick war leads to the new formation of an Albanian state and the participants of the war, Serbia, Montenegro, Bulgaria, and Greece all come out with a big fat chunk of Ottoman land. However, this seemingly good victory on the Slavic side soon turns into greed and jealousy. Bulgaria, which was the strongest of all the four powers, gets unhappy over its share of land, particularly the land of Macedonia. There are a lot of ethnic Bulgarians living in Macedonia, but at the end of the war, it was Serbia who annexed Macedonia. So Bulgaria, angry over its claims, decides to turn its back on its former allies and declare war against them. 
However, they are soon humiliated in the Second Balkan War by the powers of Serbia, Greece, and Romania, who joined a bit later the war but cr crushing the Bulgarians in the north. Through this utter humiliation, Bulgaria now has a very large grudge against the nations of Serbia, Greece, and Romania. But during all this time of war and chaos, what happened specifically was the annexation of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Because as you remember, the Ottoman Empire was in the south, so while the Slavics were dealing with the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire to the north was gradually expanding, and they took a very vital piece of land called Bosnia. And in Bosnia, there are a lot of ethnic Serbs. So now Serbia is angry, and Serbia is overconfident since they just beat a large empire, the Ottoman Empire, and they successfully defended themselves against their ally Bulgaria. So they feel like, hey, we've won two wars already. We could probably invade Austro-Hungary and win too. So with this idea, a lot of secret uh, alliances are formed, including between Serbia and Russia. And through these secret alliances, a lot of organizations are created such as the Black Hand, which one day a name then Garvio Princip joined. So, Garvio Princip was very much a nationalist. He loved his country and he loved being Serbian. However, he saw over the border that the Serbs in Bosnia were being mistreated by the Austro-Hungarians. So, one day he brought a proposal to the Serbian and Black Hand leadership. Let's assassinate the Austro-Hungarian Emperor, but not exactly the Emperor, the Archduke, which was the heir to the throne or the next in line. This was a very dangerous move, but it also would allow Serbia to gain bigger control and possibly win a war, gain Bosnia and form a greater Serbian state. So under the cover of night, Garvio Princip and a few assassins were snuck into Bosnia, Bosnia's capital, Savijeko. There, they received training and taught how to use a gun and use bombs. When the day finally arrived that the Archduke arrived at town on a military meeting, there were four main assassins. Three of them were carrying bombs, and the final one was Garvio Princip with a gun. Despite proposing the idea, he was, not an, he was not considered an essential part due to his young age and lack of skill. So the three other assassins equipped with bombs were given the task to kill the Archduke. As the Archduke drove through the town center, two of the previous assassins freaked out when unable to throw their bombs. However, the third assassin gathered, gathered up his courage and threw the bomb at the Archduke's car. However, the bomb soon bounced off the car's, the, the car's backtop and landed behind the Archduke, exploding a, exploding a few meters behind where the Archduke was sitting, injuring a few political officials. This proceeded assassination was seen as a failure and the remaining assassins retreated into Saviego. However, in the chaos, the Archduke, instead of returning to safety, decided to visit the injured at a hospital. With one wrong turn, 
the car ended up right in front of Gavio Prince, who was coincidentally dining at a bar. Seeing the Archduke stop right in front of him, he took out his pistol and fired two shots. Bang, bang. The first bullet goes through the Archduke's wife, Sophia, dies in his husband's lap. The Archduke, Franz Ferdinand, is shot and dies a few hours later. The Emperor, the Archduke, and his wife has officially been assassinated. From there on, the, as, as you can probably guess, Austro-Hungary is furious. They are extremely angry over the killing of their next in line and now it's and now they they give Serbia a insane proposition they want to compensate for the assassination they want Serbia to disband all anti-Austro-Hungarian uh, organizations including the Black Hand they want a part in they want to regulate Serbian government take part in the justice system allow police in Serbia and payment and more. So this was supposed to make Serbia rejected so that Austria-Hungary will have an excuse to declare war. However, the Serbian government, who actually did not approve the assassination, actually accepted the treaty. However, Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia anyway. This declaration sparked what we call the domino effect. With Austro-Hungarian's de declaration of war on Serbia, Russia joined the war against Austro-Hungary on Serbian side. To protect its ally, Germany declares war on Russia to protect Austro-Hungary. And because Russia is allied with France, Germany also declares war on France. This this back and forth eventually descended into bring all of Europe into the war. And this can most likely be summed up by a very famous quote by Sir Edward Grey, British Foreign Secretary. My friend recalls that I remarked on this with the words, the lamps are going out all over Europe and we shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. Now with Europe descending into catastrophic warfare, we are beginning to see the sides of war. On one side, we have the Central Powers, which consisted of Germany, Italy, and Austria-Hungary specifically. The Central Powers are given their nickname because they were surrounded by the, uh, the Entente, which was Britain, France, and Russia. Germany soon realized that it was trapped between hammer and anvil. They were surrounded by France at one side and Russia at the other side. Russia at this time was very scary since it was the largest of the it was the largest land power the world had ever seen and it had an immense military capability. So, in order to combat that, Count Ev Alfred von Schifflin, a German a German general, came up with the Schifflin plan. Instead of fighting a two-front war and inevitably losing to Russia, they would instead go through Belgium, which was neutral at the time, to go around the French ports and defenses to flank Paris. After taking care of France, it will focus on Russia and knock it out of the war. This way, they will not have to fight a war on two fronts. 
the key of the shift lane plan was speed, fast, and furious. They needed to overpower France before Russia could invade them. And this plan actually might have worked because at the start of the war, Russia and France were heavily unprepared. And so it went, the German high command decided to rely on the Schifflin plan. 48 hours before the invasion, the German high command sent a telegram to the Belgian government, which enlisted, which said that France was going to invade them to get through Germany. However, the Belgians did not believe them since they had signed an alliance with France. And so, knowing that Germany is trying to trick them, they called the British and the French. The British and the French, being unprepared for the war, asked Belgium to delay the Germans as long as possible to aid time for their troops to mobilize. Belgium, being smaller and very weak, weaker than Germany, knew that it would be crushed. And But through their courage, they decided that if they were going to get crushed and destroyed, let them be crushed gloriously. And so began the resistance of Belgium. The Germans were actually very, very surprised since they did not expect Belgium to fight back. However, though proving some resistance, the Germans still plowed through much of Belgium, capturing cities left and right, Liège, Antwerp, and finally Brussels, the capital. However, the Belgians did considerably slow down the Germans, using their forts and flooding the land with water, or slowing down their movement. However, this is where technology comes into play, as the Germans had begun introducing big Bertha guns. These were large artillery guns that could fire 80-pound shells a mile away, very long distance. And these would decimate uh, Belgian troops. Additionally, atrocities were committed by the Germans all along the way, burning down Belgian cities, terrorizing the public, and not treating the Belgians their right of neutrality. This, however, through their suffering, Britain and France were able to mobilize effectively, and the first major battle between the big powers began at the, at the Battle of Mons. The British Expeditionary Force, with a group of around 75,000 soldiers, met the German army at the bridge at the town of Mons, at Mons Bridge, fighting against the German army who had a might of 150,000. The British tried heavily to defend the bridge, but had to give up because the Germans had were closing in on it. At the end of the day, more there were more than 5,000 dead casualties for Germans and around 1.6 thousand casualties for the British. This inevitably caused the Allies to retreat to Flanders, which is the southern portion of southern portion of Belgium. With Belgium now steamrolled, the invasion of France began. The the French initially anticipated a German invasion near Aslans and Lorraine, so they had their forts and main troops there. However, due to the due to realizing that this was all fraud, the French began a massive withdrawal to Belgium to defend their vulnerable capital. This, however, was this, however, backfired since with their troops now moving, they were no longer able to defend themselves from 
the German big gun, and they were steamrolled all the way to the edges of Paris, with the Germans making it to almost to around 30 miles, 30, 30 kilometers outside of the Paris gates. However, due to a slight miscalculation, the German first army, led by von Kluck, was had its flank explode, and Joseph Menori's sixth army decided to take a gamble to defend the French capital. The sixth army, unaided and alone, would charge the German first army head-on to defend Paris. Knowing that it would suffer heavy casualties, the men charged into battle to defend their country. This is where the miracle of the Marne happens. The Germans, tired from marching and 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 tired of marching and fighting, were repelled back by the new French troops and from by reinforcements from Paris, and were forced back from Paris, saving France and and destroying the Schifflin plan. However, with the retreat, however, the retreating Germans quickly settled along the Aisne River, a few miles behind the Marne River, which the miracle, where the miracle of the Marne happened. Additionally, so there, the Germans decided to dig into the ground, with, into what we call trenches. These trenches allowed the Germans to fire upon the French without exposing themselves. Seeing the Germans do this, the French did the same. This would, this would eventually spark trench warfare that would symbolize World War I. But for now, the trenches were merely holes and long lines, not the were merely holes in the ground, not the sophisticated long lines that we know yet. So thus began the race to the sea. The Germans, French, and British quickly decided to build trenches of trying to outflank each other all the way to the sea. And by the end, they had a trench line expanded from the Swiss border in the Alps to, to the Atlantic Ocean. But, however, once they did reach the sea, the Germans were slightly able to gain ahead, and in the last-ditch attempt, they, the Allies decided to hold out at the small Flanders town of Ypres. There, 600,000 Germans met 420 thousand allied troops and one of the bloodiest battles in 1914 commenced it was it, and to make matters worse it started to rain mud piled up bodies mounted and the armies continued to fight and fight decimating the city to the ground when when the fighting was only stopped by the onset of winter by the time the snow had come and the leaves had fell over 54,000 British soldiers had died, 50,000 French soldiers, 20,000 Belgian soldiers, and a hundred thirty thousand German casualties. All in all, more than 250,000 soldiers were injured or killed at the Battle of Ypres, marking one of the deadliest days in European history. With the Western Front now land now at a stalemate due to the trenches, the Germans were woefully unprepared for the Russian offensive. Russia, who had mobilized quickly, had caught the Germans off surprise and began to invade into Eastern Prussia. And 
be invading Austria-Hungary through the mountain. This caused the Germans to divide, divert their troops and not be able to push the Allies back. However, the Russian offensive was quickly, was quickly repelled at the Battle of Tannenberg, where Russian plans being sent out the, the uncoded were uncovered by German high command and the Russians were encircled and pushed back across the river, marking the end of any major Russian offensive for 1914. Speaking of the Eastern Front, let's not forget about Serbia. For Serbia, it had to deal with the overwhelming big fat bully, which was Austria-Hungary, who quickly suppressed Serbia and with sheer numbers and took control of Belgrade, the Serbian capital. However, the Austro-Hungarians being very lacking war experience were pushed back out of Belgrade by the war-torn, by the war-hardened Serbians who had just won two Balkan wars. So now we have the French, British, Belgian versus the Germans at the Western Front in their trenches, entrenched and in stalemate, the Russians retreating from the Western Front, and Austria-Hungary losing horribly to Serbia. So for now, the World War I is still relatively new to everyone. Despite the bloody, the bloody battles of Tannenberg and Ypres, no one will be able to predict how bloody and disastrous the war really will be. For me, this is where the exciting part really begins, because as we know, the next chapter, which is 1915, we will cover the overview of technology, including zeppelins, airplanes, and the development of the machine gun. And for your viewers out there who don't like gore or bloodiness, it isn't gonna get much better from here. It's gonna, it's only gonna get more deadly and more disastrous. And that finishes our story. What a journey it has been. But for the world, this is only a mere chapter in the book that contains thousands of years of human history. Thank you for joining me today, and I wish you, traveler, that you might stumble your way back to our archives for a drink or another story. Thank you.